Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? You should be well rested. You got an extra hour, right? Which means it's going to get dark at, you know, 3 p.m. now in Tennessee. So that's a little depressing, but that's, that's okay. It's only for a while. Only for five months or something, you know. Um, glad you guys are here working through um, the book of Ephesians. If you weren't here last week, uh, Joe, I hope you've fallen in love with Joe. Joe is just a really great guy. Yeah. And it's ironic, if you have fallen in love with him, you're not going to see him very much because he's in Tullahoma now, which is awesome. We, we do our first service at our Tullahoma campus this morning. So right now they're doing their first service. So that's exciting. That's good. So um, yeah. But last week, um, he did chapter three of Ephesians. We'll get there here in a second. And um, let me fill you in a little bit about the book of Ephesians, if you haven't been here, written by a guy named Paul. The majority of the New Testament were letters, and they were letters written to churches about various problems the churches were facing, different temptations, or, or in this case, this was a letter written to a group of churches in Western Turkey, and the problem that was happening in this group of churches in a town called Ephesus was a lot of false teaching was starting to creep in. Uh, the town of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, it was actually a pretty good-sized city, about 300,000 people, was much like American culture is today. It was a very beautiful place to live. It was a very educated uh, place to live. They had a lot of affluence, money. There was a lot of trade. There was a lot of diversity. And uh, there was also a, a tremendous amount of sin. So there was a lot of sin and issues in that area. In the first three chapters, what, what Paul is basically doing is he's building up the church a little bit. He's reminding them of who God is, that you are saved by grace through faith, and God is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he's in control. There we go. And um, chapter three, in light of all that knowledge, what, what Joe talked about last week was if we know that God is good, if we know that we're saved by grace, if we know that he's in control, he said, when we pray, do we pray with faith? Do we pray believing that God has our best interests in his heart, right, and in his mind? And not just that, when we, when we praise God, like when we just sang those songs, are we sincere about it? When we say those words, when we sing out those words, are, are, we, are we singing it from, from deep within us, right? Or has it become mechanical? That's kind of what we talked about last week, what Joe talked about. What we're gonna talk about this week, and... Um, it's, 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 it's not tough. Chapter four is not hard to understand. Some of it, when we read through it, you'll be like, what does that mean? But it's, it's really not complicated at all. What chapter four is gonna be focusing on is that when we become Christians, and if you're not a Christian in here, this is just good upfront honesty, that when one accepts Jesus, when one becomes a follower of Jesus, we don't live at the same standard that we used to. We're, we're called to step up to a very high standard. Now, you shouldn't be afraid of that because God gives us the power to step up to that high standard. But, but basically, when one acknowledges who we are in God, we step up. We start, to, we start to act more like God. We're not perfect, but we are starting to move in that direction, if you will. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit today, and I, I hope you're encouraged uh, by this chapter today. It's a fascinating chapter. I've started to highlight more in my Bible I think that's just because I'm getting old and I'm afraid I'm gonna forget things, so I have to highlight it and underline it and stuff like that. But um, yeah, amen. And uh, amen, Corey's senile. Uh, but, um, 
but I have to do things to help me to to remember things. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, uh, just click on sermon notes. Make sure that you have chosen our campus because by some grave mistake you choose like Woodbury or something, you're gonna see that those notes are just not as good as mine. So uh, (laughs) just make sure you choose (laughs) the right campus. And uh, yeah, it'll be good. So anyways, let me, let me pray. We will get into, Josh is okay. He's a big Georgia Bulldogs fan. So he's, he, he's doing fine this morning. So boo, he got booed. That's right. Let's, uh, look, let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you so much. Thank you, God, that we can come into this place, Lord, and, and laugh a little bit and worship you and have the freedom, God, to just uh, come in here and learn. Um, God, keep your hand on us this morning. As we get into your word, encourage us, sharpen us, teach us. Lord, if need be, uh, rebuke and correct us, God, whatever you have to do. Lord, we pray for our church this morning. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And we pray that all we do this morning, God, that that it gives you honor and that it blesses you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray all these things in your name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in chapter four. I'm gonna read a little bit and we'll go back and and, uh, we'll dissect it, okay? This is what Paul writes. He says, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. So everything we have studied for the last couple of weeks, right, the first three weeks or so, chapters one through three, kind of leads up to what Paul is going to present in chapter four. Again, we have learned that we are saved by grace through faith. We have learned that God is all powerful. He is sovereign. He is all knowing, all these things. So in light of all that, because we have been saved by grace, by a a wonderful heavenly father, we are to walk worthy of that salvation. We're to live as the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. I love what Paul says here. And sometimes people get offended with this kind of language. But Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. That implies that Paul feels an obligation and an indebtedness to God. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, our our debt is paid. Yes, our debt is paid, but there should be a certain posture that Christians take knowing that Jesus has paid for our sin with his blood that we feel an indebtedness to him, that we feel an obligation to serve him. That's why the language, I'm a prisoner to him. I am working for the Lord because of what God has done for me. And I think that's a pretty good posture to take. So I love the Bible. The Bible is not ambiguous. When the Bible says live worthy of your salvation, it doesn't, it doesn't leave it ambiguous. Paul goes on to show you exactly what living worthy of our salvation means. He says that we're to live in humility, with gentleness, with patience, willing to love people even though it can be difficult. <laughs> Amen, right? To, to live in peace with non-believers and to live in unity with other Christians. Now, this all sounds good, all this stuff in the blue, 
but it is absolutely impossible unless you have a healthy relationship with Jesus. Absolutely impossible. So we have to read the word of God, we have to pray, and we have to strive for holiness. All that is is a fancy word for living the way God wants us to live. And when we have a good relationship with Jesus, we can do all these things in blue, right? Because of the Holy Spirit that is in us. And when we do all those things that were in blue, live in patience, live in humility, live in love, all those things, this brings unity. We start to get along better with each other. So Paul wanted Christians to unify under the major ideas and principles of the faith. But in order to do that, again, we have to have a good relationship with Jesus. We have to, to not be selfish people. And we have to make unity with other Christians a, a priority. So how we do that is we let the non-essentials go. What that means is this. So David Young from North Boulevard Church of Christ, he and I have been really good friends for a long time. I, I, I love that church. I was actually asked to speak at a thing for MTCS just a couple of weeks ago. I've spoken at North Boulevard before. And that's very odd for a Church of Christ church to ask a guy like me in a church like this to kind of partner with him. Uh, it's a very different kind of culture, very different kind of atmosphere. What's beautiful about that church is they know that that's a minor. So they let it go, right? Because we're focused on the same things. We worship the same God. We're trying to get people to the same heaven. So there are churches out there intentionally building bridges on the majors of the faith and letting the minor stuff go. Why? Because we all worship the same God. So to let things like music style and how we dress in church and whether you have a steeple or you have a brewery in the back of your church, whatever the difference <laughs> is, right? <laughs> we... <laughs> Someone just found that out for the first time. They're like, what? <laughs> How did I end up here? Anyways, <laughs> we serve the same God. Paul even says this, the true church, the real church is one body under one spirit called by one hope. That is the resurrection of Jesus. We believe in one savior. That is Jesus Christ. We have one faith. That is what Jesus did on the cross and we all enter into the same family through the same way, that is our baptism. And so basically what Paul is saying is, major on the majors, right? The exclusivity of Jesus as the only pathway to heaven, the word of God as the only divine instruction from God, just focus on that and let the other small things go because we're serving the same God. The other thing that Paul says is this, we will be known as followers of God by how we treat each other. Jesus actually said this in the Gospel of John. So if we can work to build relationships with other Christians while avoiding heresy. Now, this is interesting. If you call yourself a Christian, but you do not think Jesus is the only pathway to heaven, I cannot work with you. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't care about you. We're not on the same page. We're not going in the same direction. So we are to bond with other believers as long as there is not heretical theological beliefs in there. And so church is getting past the minors and joining in the fight against evil. If we will let the minors go, and if we will partner with the Anglican church, the Church of Christ, the Baptist church, the Catholic church, whatever it is, if we can let the minors go and focus on the majors, we as Christians can be a light to the world around us. And this is God's desire. This is what God wants for us. 
Unfortunately, we get hung up on so many minor details that we often cause division, right? Okay, next part. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. I highlighted verse 14 then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown away by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Sounds complicated, I promise you, it, it, it is not. The first thing is, as Paul quotes Psalm 68, when David wrote Psalm 68, he was talking about Moses going up on Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments, and then bringing that gift down to the Jewish people. When Paul refers to that scripture, he is referring to Jesus being crucified, resurrecting, ascending up into heaven, and then bringing down the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about those in 1 Corinthians, we've talked about those in Romans, and now we see them here in Ephesians. Some of those gifts of the Holy Spirit are solely uh, uh, given to us to build up the church. There are some individuals who have been given certain gifts by God to, to be uh, uh, builders of his body, builders of his church. One of those gifts is the gift of being an apostle, which means someone who plants churches and oversees churches. That's, that's what Paul did. There is the gift of being a prophet. Now, this is not someone that tells the future, but it is someone who has kind of miraculous foresight to see things on the horizon. So if God had given me the gift of, of prophecy as a pastor, Maybe I see something culturally that's a decade in the future and I, and I prepare my church to the best of my abilities for those things that I, I think are coming, right? That's a prophet. It's also someone that can, can, can communicate the Bible really well. There's an evangelist and there's a lot of evangelists in this church, people who have a natural gift just for going out and gathering people into, into Christianity, going out to their work or to their gym or to their coffee shop and they're just really good at bringing people into the church. There are pastors and teachers, which is pretty self-explanatory. Someone who's a shepherd, someone who's a good communicator. Now, what's interesting is Paul says this, these are not the sole roles of people who do the work of the ministry. It actually is the congregation who does the majority of the work of the ministry. I think a lot of times in, in, in American church, you know, we see the individual up there, you know, if, if it's Mitch leading worship or me teaching, they, well, they, they get paid to do that. It's their job, right? Actually, what my job is to, be a, is to be a supporting role for you. 
you're going to touch more people in Murfreesboro than I will ever touch, right? You will do more in this city than I will ever do. My role is just to hopefully get under there and maybe teach you a little bit more about the Bible or show you some practical application. That's, I'm just here to equip the saints. And it's actually you guys who go out and do the groundwork of the ministry. And what we're supposed to do, all of us, me and all of you guys, is we should constantly be growing in our maturity. So the Bible does not condone rock star pastors or lazy congregants. It doesn't condone either one. And unfortunately, this is what you see in the United States. You see that slick guy up there wearing the really fancy tennis shoes who makes way too much money and you know he's really charismatic and doesn't really say anything of any substance, but he looks really good, right? Well, he's a rock star. And then we have a lot of congregants who sit around and don't do anything. And neither one of these things are condoned by the Bible. We are all to put our hands and feet to the work of our Father and to go out and build his kingdom, whether that be my role as an equipper or your role as, as the grassroots kind of ground ministry. We're all to be doing this. And there were no longer children, right? We're no longer immature. And when we mature in our faith, this is so important, we will not be tossed by every single idea that comes out in our culture. This is a huge problem right now. In light of, of how Christians in America act, we, we, have, we have proven to be a very immature faith in the United States. And what I mean by that is, we are constantly tossed to and fro in, in Christianity in the, in the United States by every cultural fad. Right now, and listen, I'm gonna balance this out with the next slide, but right now, the big one that is getting pushed and that a lot of churches are caving on is the topic of gender. There are so many whole denominations right now who are saying, well, maybe there's not two genders. Maybe there are more than two genders. Now, listen, biologically, that's a problem. Um, philosophically, that's a problem. And, and, and theologically, that's a problem. Well, how is that a theological issue? When you go to Genesis 1 and 2, and Moses writes that God created a human, humankind, mankind in his image, he created them male and female. To say that there is more than that means that God is incomplete that we know more than God, that we figured out something that the creator didn't know when he made us. There is a deep theological implication when we have this discussion of gender, right? That every other human has got it wrong for the last 9,000 years, but we have, now, we have now cracked this secret code. And I'm not trying to be mean there, but what I'm saying is when the church rolls over because of the cultural pressure of things like that, there is a theological and spiritual implication to that. And it shows our immaturity. And we are not to be swayed just because we're afraid of hurting people's feelings or getting quote unquote canceled, right? We cannot do this. Now that's one side of it. The other side of it is this. You and I are called to love everybody. Absolutely everybody. Well, Corey, they haven't earned my respect. They're, you're not, they're not supposed to right? They don't know what you know. We are just called to love and respect all people regardless of what they do. This is why Peter says that you are to honor the emperor. That emperor was not a respectable person. In fact, he had Peter killed upside down. This is why Paul said, respect the governing authorities, not because they were respectable, because that was the directive that God gave him, the same authorities that ended up cutting his head off. We are to love and respect all people. We are called, Christians, you and I, are called to live in this very uncomfortable tension. Let me tell you what that tension is. We are called to hold on to the truth, this is the truth, 
and never let it go. We cannot let go of this. This is our tether, it is our anchor, the word of God, right? We are to never let this go. As we hold on to this though, we are to simultaneously radically love people like no one else loves on planet earth. And we are to live in that tension, in truth and in love, and we display both of those things. Is that easy? Heck no. It is very, very hard. But that is the tension that we are called to live in, okay? Next part. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do, I highlighted this, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught about him, as the truth as in Jesus, is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Okay. So the Ephesians lived in a very, very evil society. Again, this sounds very similar to what we live in today. It was a very, very materialistic society. They had a lot of money. And listen, the Bible is not against one having money or even nice things, but it is that desire where that becomes your identity or that becomes your only driving force, then it becomes sinful. These people were materialistic, right? It was all about what they could own. These people were very pagan, which means they believed there was a multiplicity of gods and all of those were good, right? They were all equal. And they were also a very hyper-sexualized culture. Sounds a lot like us. And so Paul tells them, don't live like that culture. Don't live like these people because I love this word, it is futile. Think about it in your life. The pursuit of more stuff is never satisfied. Listen, I love cars. I'm a car person, right? Absolutely love cars. But cars typically degrade in value. So you, you buy that 2022 whatever, right? Now 2023, you can probably get 2023 cars, whatever it is. But right when you drive it off that car lot, right? It drops what? A quarter in price or whatever. And so these things instantly go down. So what that means is materialism is never satisfied. Um, sexual, uh, hypersexualization never satisfied. It's never enough, right? And this is why people go to these bizarre links and do things that are quite grotesque because when you're hypersexualized, there's no end to that. Paganism, right? There is no end to, to the different uh, uh, ideologies and things that people have and it doesn't satisfy them. It's futile. And so what Paul is essentially saying, not just to them, to all Christians, be counter your culture because your culture is, is futile. There's futility in those thoughts. There is no good ending to those thoughts. And when we pursue those futile thoughts, we are excluded from a life of God. So people who live in sin are darkened in their understanding. In other words, they're confused. And my God, do we not live in a confused society today? 
The Bible even says that people will become so depraved, they will not know what right and wrong is. They will not know the difference between up and down. You're there, right? Not you as an individual, you as a society. And this is an ignorance. It's a willing ignorance. And what happens is, is when we willingly live in the ignorance of God, eventually our hearts become hardened. That's why Paul says in Romans that eventually God gives us over to a depraved mind, a worthless mind, the old King James version, a reprobate mind, that eventually we become hardened. So here, this is very simple, but think on this. What we consume with our eyes and our ears will eventually dictate what we think, and what we think will eventually dictate how we live. So what we take in matters. And when we are constantly consuming materialism, hypersexuality, you know, whatever, whatever we constantly consume will eventually shape how we live. And then we can't get surprised when things are dark, when things are confusing because we lack understanding. So Paul says, look at this, this is so interesting. Paul says these people have become callous because they have engaged in every kind of impurity and they want more and more and more, they have become, let's change the word callous to desensitized. And again, this is our culture, right? You guys ever, I don't know if you guys ever get calluses. I have a permanent callus that's always right here under my ring finger. I never take off my wedding ring. I just have this fear of, you know, it's not because, you know, people are just like, ooh, he's single. It's not that at all. It's, uh, I just have this fear of losing it, right? And so I never take it off. And when I work on my cars and stuff, I've got this huge callus right there. And what's interesting about a callus, if you've ever had one, like if you're a guitar player and you get them on your fingertips, um, it doesn't start immediately. Like if you buy a brand new acoustic guitar and you've never played guitar, you play and you're like, man, that hurts my fingers. But the more and more you play, the less and less you feel it. It's like the world around us. The more we, the more we watch violence, the more we engage in violence, the more we watch sexual things, the more we engage in sexually things, eventually you just don't feel it anymore. And now we turn on the news and there's another school shooting where you know six people get shot in a school and we're like, oh, anything else on, right? Because we've become so desensitized to it. And this is a choice to, to develop a callus, right? We could catch it at any time. We could choose to do things differently and those calluses, this desensitization, desens whatever, calluses wouldn't, wouldn't build but it's a constant choice of us going back into these evil things. And Paul says, this is not the way we're supposed to act. When we become Christians, the old self dies. In Romans chapter six, Paul gets kind of graphic with it. He says, the old you is crucified. You're, that's dead, that no longer exists. In Ephesians chapter four, he almost makes it like a wardrobe. He says, when we become Christians, we take off the old shirt, right? of all the mistakes and, and evil things we have done and, and regret and all that, we take that off and we replace it with a new beautiful white shirt, right? Something that, that is pure and something that is different. But we have to be willing to take off the former self and willing to put on the new self, which means we have to want to have a new attitude. We have to want to desire the things of God. We have to want to live differently. It doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect, but if we desire the things of God, God will start giving you those things. We will start acting more like God. Our thoughts, our actions, everything will start to change, but it starts with a desire. So again, let me tell you how great the Bible is. What does it mean to put on the new way? Paul is gonna tell us exactly what that looks like. 
Therefore, putting away, lying, speak the truth with one another, uh, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of your redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And I love this. He says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Very simple stuff. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. How do we live differently? Since we have been saved by grace through faith, we are called to live in a way that honors the one who saved us. The first thing is quite simple, right? Your, your mom told you this right when you were old enough to understand it, don't lie. Be honest, don't be deceitful, don't be manipulative, be an honest person, stop lying. Now, this sounds simple, but in moments of desperation, in moments of selfishness, in moments of insecurity, whatever the case may be, we may have a tendency to exaggerate the truth or flat out lie about something or manipulate someone, but this is not how the Christian is called to live. This is one of the 10 commandments, right? Very simple, but again, we can easily fall into this. And when we do, we need to ask God to forgive us and we need to make sure that we do our best not to do that anymore. We, that, that's the old way of doing things. The world is manipulative. Christians are not called to be manipulative. The world is dishonest. We're not called to be dishonest. We've taken that off, right? And we've replaced it with the new self. We are also called to control our anger. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to get angry. Jesus got angry several times, right? The most famous one when he walks into the temple and sees that it's become this big commercial enterprise. The disciples are looking around and they're just like, where, where, you know, where's Jesus? And he's like, oh, he's over there. What's he doing? And he's making a whip. He's like, I'm about to show you what I'm doing, right? He's gonna whip everyone and get them out of the church, out of the temple. He was mad. He was super mad. There are several times that Jesus gets mad in the gospel. So Jesus gets mad. It's not that we're called not to get angry. We cannot sin in that anger. So if we have conflict with someone, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 how to deal with conflict. Um, we're also told right here that we're not to just like sit on our anger. You ever met those people who are just like, well, I'm just gonna sit on it for a while. It's gonna fester. It's gonna get worse. Deal with it, right? Deal with it before the sun sets, the Bible says. Good advice for married couples. Another thing about this is we cannot let our, our emotions lead us. We live in a society right now to where if we feel like it's true, if we feel like it's good for us, it's offensive if anyone tells us otherwise. And that's counterintuitive to the Bible. The Bible says that your emotions are deceitful. Your heart can lie to you. So whenever your kids are watching that movie and it says, follow your heart, and you'd be like, you know, that's bad advice, right? Don't do that. Follow the Holy Spirit that is in you. Emotions make wonderful servants, but they make horrible masters. They're not to lead you. 
okay? They are to work for you, not lead you, your emotions. We're also called not to steal. Again, this is simple stuff. We all know this. It's a simple command, but we need to remember this. Stealing isn't just throwing a brick through a window and running in and you know, trying to get something out of a store. Stealing is taking anything that isn't ours from anyone else that is stealing. And this is loosely, well, I shouldn't even say loosely, I'd say it's pretty, pretty connected to the 10 commandment of not coveting what your neighbor has. You know that what your neighbor has is none of your business? You know it's between them and God? So where I live, I live in a very middle-class neighborhood. It's a nice neighborhood, older neighborhood, most houses built in the 80s, 90s, nice neighborhood. But about two blocks over, you have, we have some monstrous houses. Um, right down the road from me, there's a 30,000 square foot house, right? That's, that's a big house. And so there's some big houses not, not too far from me. Now, what they have, I may think it's excessive or whatever the case may be, but it's none of my business. But if I start driving by these houses going, man, it is not fair that they have that. That should be mine. That is a sin. It's one of the 10 commandments. It is a sin. And when we have whole movements saying, well, you have more than me, that's not fair. You need to, we, need to do, we need to take that from you and I need to have some. It's wrong. It is 100% wrong. Because what we need to remember is this, that person in that 30,000 square foot house, um, they might have multiple PhDs. They might, they might work 80 hours a week, right? They might do all these things that I haven't done. And so I don't know, that's between them and the Lord, okay? Right? And God will deal with them, okay, on those things. So it's also clear that able-bodied people are supposed to work. This is what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3. If you're an able-bodied person, but you refuse to work, the Bible says you shouldn't be allowed to eat. That's in the Bible. You know what a lot of Christians do is we enable non-biblical behavior, though. We do a lot of things for people who are more than able to go out and earn what they're supposed to do. And that's not biblical, quite frankly. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But you know what's interesting? Paul says right here that if you are able-bodied, you're not only to work, but you are to work so you can give to those in need. So Christians are also called, again, here's this tension, right? Are we to enable bad behavior and just throw money out of helicopters for benevolence? No, that's stupid. But we're also to love people, to work hard, and Christians should be the most generous giving people on planet Earth. Right? So there is this tension of that as well. We must also watch our tongue. Here's where we all feel conviction. Now, this is actually less about swearing. You know, your grandmother probably, you know, probably brought the scripture up and said, that's why you don't cuss. That's not really what Paul was talking about, but, but it can include offensive language. But this is more talking about gossip, backbiting, slander. And if we were to follow this simple command, 90% of the problems we get into, we wouldn't have. <laughs> that's why it says in the book of James that only the Holy Spirit can tame the tongue. So we are to let God tame our tongue, and when we don't, we grieve the Holy Spirit. So we are to speak with wisdom. We are to speak with kindness. He even says, don't say things unless it lifts people up, right? Isn't it, again, these are things we all know. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. That's essentially a biblical principle. And so again, I love how clear the Bible is. The Bible says there are some things we have to take off and put away, and then there are other things that we put on. What we are to take off is bitterness, anger, and wrath. That means thinking bad thoughts. That means thinking aggressive, violent, hateful thoughts, right? We are to remove that. We're not to think those kind of thoughts. We're also to remove shouting and slander. 
that is speaking destructive things. So we're not to think evil things, we're not to speak evil things, and then malice is actually acting on that. So we're not just thinking it, we're not just saying it, we're gonna do evil. So the Bible clearly says, get a grip on your thoughts by the power of the Holy Spirit, get a grip on your tongue by the power of the Holy Spirit, and get a grip on your actions by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on the flip side of that, I love what Paul says. He says, be kind. Boy, if we were all just nice, if we would just be nice to each other, be compassionate and be forgiving. Why? Because Jesus forgave you. But Corey, they're bad. You were bad. We've all been bad, right? And Jesus forgave us, so we forgive others. Walking worthy of our calling. Like I said at the beginning, if you are not a Christian in here, really glad you're here, but I just wanna be honest with you. When we accept Christ, when we follow Jesus, we are called to step up. Doesn't mean that God loves us any more than anyone else, but we are called to live at a higher standard because we have a different knowledge and we will be judged according to that knowledge. So we trust Jesus, we lean on Jesus. The question is not do we, or are we supposed to live at a higher standard? Again, I say this all the time, Whenever people say they're a Christian, but they keep living the same way that they were living before they knew Christ, there's something wrong. That is not biblically supported. We are called to step up. So the standard of God is not the question. The question is, will we accept the standard of God? And if we choose Jesus, we are choosing, <laughs> we are choosing to behave like we are the son and daughter of the king of the universe. That's a high calling. It's a high calling, okay? And we are not what we used to be. Through our salvation and through our sanctification, that's the process by which we become more like God, we should no longer be infants in our understanding. So if you get saved, you're not supposed to stay a spiritual baby forever. Peter and Paul both say this, you're not just supposed to drink milk forever, eventually you have to eat meat. And this means when we start to mature in our faith, we should be able to stand firm. We stand firm by praying. We stand firm by reading the Word of God. It's impossible to stand firm on the Word of God if we've never read the Word of God. We stand firm by asking for the strength of the Holy Spirit so we're not rattled, so we're not confused by every passing fad. Do you know how arrogant we are in the United States and the Western world? We think that all these new ideas are new. There's nothing new under the sun. Let me go back to the topic of gender for a second. I've taught about this before. We think in the United States, oh, we, we, we've discovered that there, we, we can be fluid with our gender and our bio biology. Man, the Roman Empire had statues of hermaphrodites all over the Roman Empire. That was a God that could change its gender from male to female and back. We're not new, we're not creative. We're doing all the same bull crap that humans have always been doing. And we think that we have cracked some code or broken some new thing and God has seen fads come and go for a long time, but he has not changed. Therefore, we are not to change if we're walking in a relationship with him. We're not to be rattled and confused by every passing fad that comes our way. Now, after saying all that, right? Holding on to our biblical integrity, holding on to that, here's the tension you're also called to love everybody. Every single person you meet. 
Not just love them, you are called to show them honor, you're, you're called to show them respect without compromising your biblical integrity. That is a tension. It is a tension, but it's one that you and I are called to live in. Love people radically, radically love them, radically love them without compromising what you know to be true. What that means is this, and I'm gonna say this with, with a lot of grace, you and I cannot disengage from the world. It doesn't mean we do the same things that the world does, but you cannot be afraid of your work environment. You cannot be afraid of, of, of you know, letting your kids do things. You cannot be afraid of going to the gym or going to the coffee. We, cannot, we don't need to build communes and distance ourselves from everyone that's lost because Jesus was, 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 was making us the salt and the light to send us out into a dark world to penetrate the darkness, to, to share the truth with people who need it. If we isolate ourselves, how will the gospel spread? How will the kingdom advance? How will the lost get saved? How will the broken get repaired if we are not out there doing what God has called us to do? We cannot disengage. Now, is that scary? Yes. If you have children in this room, you know that's scary. I have two beautiful daughters, and it's a little scary sometimes. But I have to remind myself, if I am full of the light, there is no amount of darkness that should intimidate me. You need to remember that too. We are to display a different, pure, and biblical love to people who are lost and people who are hurting. We are supposed to go out and do that. Which means we have to understand who we are. Listen, I hope this makes sense. When we live in lust, when we live in anger, when we live in materialism, when we live in hatred, when we live in divisiveness, whatever the case may be, when we live in these sins, it is because we are forgotten what our true identity is. It is degrading to us to live in those identities. We are, we are not fully understanding who, we're, who we were created to be. I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not trying to be crass or anything, but we talked about promiscuity, having sex with lots and lots of people, right? The reason why the Bible says that is wrong is not because God is anti-sex. God created you in such a way to where those things are supposed to be pleasurable. That He's not anti-sex, but God is trying to tell us, you don't haphazardly give yourself away to all these people because you're made in my image. You are stamped by God. And God is saying you are more valuable than to be reduced to a piece of flesh. You're more valuable than to be reduced to a commodity or just something that makes someone feel good on a Friday night. You're better than that. That's why those, those rules are in place. Because when we become Christians, salvation is an identity change. Now, every person on planet Earth is made in the image of God, but when we give our life to Jesus, we now have an understanding of who we are, and that should change the way we live. Why? Because you have been adopted by the king of the universe. Now, listen, any car people in here, right? Or it could be any product. I, a couple of us just went to a big car show we go to every year. And there's certain cars when you walk by them, you know just by the badge on the hood that that's an expensive car. That's a valuable car. And we are the same way. When we have God's stamp on us, there should be an acknowledgement of how invaluable we are. That we are to treat ourselves in a certain way, to maintain ourselves in a certain way, to carry ourselves in a certain way, because you are the only thing in the universe that resembles God. You're the only thing with that mark. 
You're the only thing with that identity. That means we are created for greater things, listen to me, than the shallow pursuits of the world. You are created for something better than just having sex with a lot of people. You are created for something better than just having the nicest car on the block or the nicest house. I have nothing against those things, but you're, you're, you're made for something more than that. You're made for something more than just the pursuit of climbing up a corporate ladder or, or doing something that, again, nothing wrong with those things, but you're created for a bigger purpose than that, bigger than the aspirations of this world. So what I think a lot of us have done, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe you've never heard this before, but you are the most intricate, beautiful, invaluable thing that has ever been created. You are. God sees you, he loves you, he thinks everything of you. He sent his only son to die on a cross and be resurrected for you, that if we would just put our trust in him, we will never die, but have everlasting life. That's what God thinks about you. We either didn't know that, or some of us in this room have forgotten that. You have forgotten. You have forgotten just how special you are. And when we get distracted, and when we forget who we're made in the image of, we start to find our identity in our money or our popularity or our looks or whatever. And we have forgotten who we are. And we don't live the way that God has designed us to live. We don't live at the great purpose that God has for us. I want this to be an encouragement to you today. And this, listen, this shouldn't cause us to be arrogant. It should make us be very, very humble but you need to hear there is nothing more valuable in the universe than you. There is nothing that God loves more. There is nothing that God has put more time and, and, and intricacy into than you. You are the pinnacle of the creation of God. How can I say that? Because you're the only thing that looks like him. I want you to think on that this morning. That's how valuable you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. God has a wonderful purpose for you wonderful purpose for you, okay? And we have to live in that. Live like you're a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, because that's what you are. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He does all of our discipleship processes. If you have any questions for Jonathan, he'd love to talk with you. And we're not intimidated or afraid of questions, please. Please come up and talk to him. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, listen, we're a very honest and very non-judgmental church. Maybe you have forgotten your identity and maybe you've slipped into to lust or materialism or greed or whatever it is. Come up here and confess it to someone and have someone pray with you. But you can get prayer for anything, okay? Also, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table and in the middle on these posts, there is bread and wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We call that communion. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I, I wanna encourage you today, if you take communion, sit just for a second when you taste that, that very stale, bland bread, and when you drink that juice, I want you to think for a minute, 
the God of the universe gave his son, his body was broken, his blood was shed because he loves me more than anything. I just want you to sit on that a little bit. Think about that a little bit this morning. And he has called you to a high calling, a high calling. Father God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be in this room with, with my friends, my brothers, my sisters this morning. God, remind us of what you think of us. Remind us, God, of, of the value that you place on us, God. And Lord, let us live in a way that honors that. Keep my friends safe, Lord. Protect them, God. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name, God, in your son's name, Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.